It's illegal. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah that's a that's a trick one. Yeah, yeah, like we would stand behind the tables at these whiskey fest events, and somebody'd come up and ask where your distillery is, and we would openly say that we don't have a distillery that we source barrels and blend and you know create these products. And I said that's illegal. You can't do that. If you don't distill it, you can't claim that that's your liquid. Oh, I, we I can't tell you how many times we've had that conversation. <laughs> You're like, go talk to the bullet booth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. Seagrass, Dovetail, Vantage. These are all names that we immediately associate to barrel bourbon. And I'm excited to bring back two guests on the show to talk about hitting a milestone, their 10-year anniversary, and that's Joe Beatrice and Trip Stimson. Joe and Tripp reflect on their early vision for the company and how it's evolved from figuring out budgets and spending, learning from early batches, and how their decision to not follow the bourbon playbook of building a brand has been a success for them. We talk about their expanding facilities with the new Rick House, how they read consumer habits and trends, and where the company will be next, and we even touch on Amberana casks. It's a fascinating look at the past decade, and we also look through the future vision of this fast-growing brand. With that, enjoy this week's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes on Twitter from NFT-ING360, who asked the question, what's the difference between sourcing and contract distilling? Great question. I have approached that before on this show, but it's not as uniquely phrased as this one. So if we want to look at a very blanket sourcing, so you start a brand and you buy barrels from a broker or a distiller. You are buying the barrels as they are, and you do not really get much of a choice of the recipe. They just, you know, they are what they are. You buy them or you don't buy them. You buy a thousand of them, you buy 500 of them, you buy two. You know, that's that's sourcing. You are sourcing your base product or your product from another distiller or a broker. Contract distilling, on the other hand, you have quite a bit more control. You are, in fact, contracting a distiller to make whiskey for you. So they're making new make, whereas the sourcing, you are buying the barrels. With contract distillation, you are making agreement with a distiller for a recipe of your choosing or whatever it is that they offer. Now, some places let you choose a recipe, let you choose the grains, bring in your own yeast, and you can do whatever you want. Now, Bardstown Bourbon Company does that. MGP has a little flexibility, and there's more brands coming out that are giving people who need contracts uh, a little bit more leeway. But, you know, for the most part, historically, that's not been the case. Like when Brown Foreman did contract distillation for Heaven Hill, they were like, yeah, here's the recipe. You know, we can use your yeast, but this is what we can do. And they would change that up a little bit for brands here and there, but there was not as much flexibility. So contract distillation is where you work with a distiller to distill it off the still and put it in a barrel, whereas sourcing is 
after it's been in the barrel. So I hope that makes sense, NFT-ING360. Thank you for the question on Twitter. If you would like to be like NFT-ING360, you can hit me up on Twitter. It's at Fred Minnick, or excuse me, it is no longer Twitter. It is X. If I like the question, I'll read it on the air. Until next week, cheers. And they're off for another Get270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Welcome back, everybody. It's another episode of Burn Pursuit coming at you. Kenny and Ryan here today with two of our friends that have been on the show plenty of times before. And this is always good to be able to talk about what's happening with them because they've had a pretty monumental rise and this is a big year for them as well. And we've been able to kind of see their growth of the podcast, even when we started back in 2015 and sort of where they've grown and how they've made a name for themselves, how they've taken double golds at San Francisco and kind of captured a large audience and stuff like that. And so we'll be able to dive into more about what they're up to, what their big plans are and sort of what the, maybe, maybe also a look back. I think that's one of the things that we always tend to always overlook is, I don't know, maybe it's our personalities. We always think about like, what's next? We have to do next. And we don't do a good job of reflecting back and thinking like, oh, Look at all that we actually accomplished. Yeah. How, I mean, I think the first time we were, we were on your kitchen table. So we've <laughs> kind of we've kind of grown parallel, not quite to the extent they have. But no, the, their their resume is impressive. We love hanging out. Always love hanging out with Joe and Tripp. They're one of the pioneers in the industry. Really changed the game. Kind of paved the way for people like us, you know, the, to make our little splash in the in the game. So always loved having them, love learning from them. I'm just a sponge when they come on. I'm just going to sit back and listen. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so let's go ahead and introduce them. So making their reappearances back on the show, we have Joe Beatrice and Trip Stimson, the founder and chief whiskey scientist over at Barrel Bourbon. So fellas, welcome back. Thank you for having us. What's Thanks a chief whiskey us. scientist role do? Everything. <laughs> Everything. With multiple hats, man. Yep. From 
cleaning restrooms, you know, and all that, er, anything and everything. At one time, that was part of the role. We, We all did all kinds of stuff when we started, from cleaning restrooms to blending to driving trucks and rolling barrels. And, I mean, you name it, it was, you can count on one hand how many of us were involved. Yeah. So talk about what you got going on these days. You got all the new facilities, warehouses, this and that. Far, it's a well, it's yeah. a big year, big right? year too. Tenth, tenth year anniversary. Yep. We got a lot to cover here. Yeah, it's our tenth year. This year we bought a historic Rick House, which is operational, and we're filling it up, and we're building out a new facility on Watterson Trail, and we're about to go live there in early September. Well. Maybe even sooner. We'll Maybe see. sooner. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, yeah. It, there's there's always things and hurdles that come in the way of what we've been learning in this business. <laughs> <laughs> so Joe is the you know, the founder, you know, ten years ago, what was your vision like for the company then? And how has it changed today? Good question. It was really uh it, the whole thing started in my house. I mean, I don't know if I've ever told you guys this story. Uh, all right, Dan, because early on, we're all faking it till we make it. We don't really, <laughs> now, really tell the truth. Now the truth comes out. <laughs> now it's the like, truth comes out we, once you've made it. <laughs> no, I mean, the, uh, the, the inspiration was uh, my wife and I, Janet, were up at a distillery in upstate New York, and we were doing the tour, and it was, it was really interesting. And, and I had a background in spirits marketing, so I knew a little bit about it, and, and had this moment where I thought, you know, this is what we should do. And we should build a distillery and start a brand. And it took about a week from that point to decide that, figure out that we weren't going to build a distillery. <laughs> uh, it was, it was because it's basically building a factory. I mean, you know, the, 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 the key is to build something that is replicatable and sustainable. And, and then you got to, the, then the punchline is you got to wait five years to do anything with it. So we thought that instead we decided to to create a brand, figure out what would position us differently from everything that was out there, an ownable position. And literally one year to the day, we bottled our first product and went to the market. I opened up the first hundred accounts. I drove around with the product in my trunk and <laughs> sold in. Dude, that, I mean, that's the ran it from my bedroom. It was <laughs> it's the it's the startup hustle and grind that you hear so many times when it takes what it actually takes to make it in this business. It's not as easy and glamorous as a lot of people like to think. It's I think what somebody said is like if you want to start a business, you need ten million dollars. That's five million in product, but five million in advertising. And it's really a hard way to kind of do it. So in the very beginning, how did you sit there and say like, okay, we need money for allocating for certain things? Like, I mean, where were you budgeting and where were you thinking of like, how are we going to spend our money in the right places to to grow this thing? Well, our focus was 100% on the product. So we we really believed in what we're doing, believed in the packaging, believed in getting it into people's mouth. And so the conventional thinking is you go and put it into an, an on-premise place, get a bar or restaurant, and then people will buy it. We went the opposite direction. We went we went completely for off-premise uh, liquor stores, and we did tastings. We had thousands of tastings and events and festivals, and we know we it was we weren't spending any money on marketing. To this day, our marketing budget is much lower than, relatively speaking, than any brand. Because we do it all by, you know, the old fashioned way. <laughs> yeah. What were those early pitches like driving around, you know, those first hundred accounts and like, what was the feedback, you know? Well, it went from one of my favorite ones where it was, I went to a, an account and the guy goes, wait here, I'll be right back. 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> wait for you to like ghost out of there. 20 minutes later, I asked somebody and they said, well, he's in the bathroom. I'm like. 
so yeah, it's, it's, it's guy, that right? kind that's, of. That's, that's, that's about the average time we need, need the, the bathroom anyway. Uh, Although I will say the first, you know, it was really funny because the first the first day, the first couple of accounts I went to, I went in, they bought several cases, and I'm like, hey, how hard can this thing be? <laughs> then it was then day two happened, you know, and so it's 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 a long it's a long grind, but but we really focused on just on the hand sell and educating people on what we do and. It's just paid off. That's that's where we spend all of our time at this point. I mean, we do a lot of social media. We do a lot of online advertising. We do you know we do we do some D to C work, but for the most and we do some ads. But we're we're in competitions and we're out there in the market every day. Yeah. So sourcing wasn't a new concept, but you all were kind of one of the first to like embrace it and say like, okay, we are sourcing and we're sourcing from multiple states and different places. And how was that like perceived? You know, another really good question. So yeah, it was challenging so when as part of the brand we were going to be as transparent as we possibly could be so we led with the fact that we're an ndp non-producing distillery you should speak to that i mean that was well let me go back to you know when, when joe was talking about how he realized that building a distillery was not necessarily the path because when i met joe the first time i was you were sold on the distillery <laughs> right is that what well I, I was a consultant for years before meeting joe and people would say that they wanted to build a distillery and I would present them with the reality of what building a distillery really looks like building the factory running the factory and it's it's not in a lot of cases this pretty picture of if you build it they will come I mean you are literally grinding every single day and so I would present this opportunity of building a brand sourcing barrels and building a brand and just sort of dipping your toe into what this would be and at some point if you're successful building the brand, then the brand would then justify the cost and the work of building a distillery. And so I taught myself out of a lot of business as a consultant, even though that's not really what you're supposed to do. <laughs> uh, but when I met Joe, the the instant synergy there was that he'd already figured all those things out. It's like, wow, this guy's done his homework. And so having that conversation, we were immediately focused on the fact that we didn't necessarily need a distillery at that moment. And we were 100% focused on what goes in that bottle because the liquid in the bottle is what's going to bring the customer back to buy the second bottle and the third bottle and so on and so forth. So that's really where we put all of our focus. And then originally we were using a lot of just Kentucky whiskey, Kentucky bourbon. And the sort of the, the premise in the industry is, you know, Kentucky's the only place you can get bourbon. And it's the only place it's, it's, it's really made. And if it doesn't come from Kentucky, then it's not really a good product. It's not a good bourbon. And what we were focusing on is really the flavor complexities. And other distilleries use other grain bills and other yeast strains to create different types of flavors that would blend well and marry well with products from Kentucky. So we started playing around with different states, different barrels, different mash bills, different yeast strains, and building complex products that were just hugely flavorful. And it took a lot of work to get to the point where at some of these, you know, these shows and these events where people were tasting like, wow, this is amazing. What is this? And we'd say, well, this is a blend of Tennessee, Kentucky, Indiana. We'd name off all these states. You're like, what? Because nobody was doing that at the time. So we, we were, you know, kind of on uncharted ground here. And they're like, well, how can, how can you do that? This is bourbon, right? It's, it's got to come from Kentucky. And so we, we had to do a lot of education and talk about how everything that we're doing is really on the, the flavor, the complexities that we can build and, and put into the bottle. And so that was, that was a long road. Yeah. 
as a Kentucky boy, I had my blinders on for the longest time. Like, it's got to be Kentucky, you know, this and that. And then, like, to be honest, first time I had a Tennessee whiskey was from Barrel, you know. And the flavors, you know, I think it was a blend of Tennessee and Kentucky. And I can't remember. It was one of those early batches. But I was like, holy cow, the flavors here are insane that you can't get from one mash bill that's aged in 50 different locations and branded 50 different ways. You get some different flavor profiles, you know, from the wood. But when you blend those different distillates, different mash bills together, there's there's something magical that you can create than just having one mash bill aged, you know, in different locations. Exactly. And also part of the premise of the core was we did everything at cast strength. You have to realize 10 years ago, there really were only a handful of cast strength products. Now everybody's got a cast strength product. So we are we had 100% focus on, as Tripp said, on the blend, on the flavor, and the flavor profile. So that allowed us to, to do massive experimentation. We do, even for our, just as an, by way of example, for our Vantage product, we had a test matrix of about 300 different barrel mash bill age, different kind of toast, different kind of barrel mizanaro, and also other other wood to come up with that profile. So we we spend extensive amounts of time doing it because that's our focus. That's what we do. And it's been really, what's been really interesting is we've been developing and innovating along the way. We've done a lot of multiple finish blends first. We do we do several products with three finishes. And so you're, you're now seeing that we've led that. And so you're seeing a lot, a lot of companies in doing the same things we were doing, which is, you know, it feels kind of good to have that that a little, uh, yeah, little badge <laughs> of honor there. <laughs> yeah, we were doing it. We've inspired so many companies to also do the same thing. So you're gonna call them inspiring or copying? What do you want? To say? <laughs> inspiring. Ah, it's the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> inspiring. You know, I mean, it's, well, it's inspiring that it's it's great that they were able to to make a business out of it. You know, I had another whole life, and half a dozen of the people that work for me have created pretty successful companies, all in the same general area. So, I mean, it, it feels good. I mean, it does feel good. It's a little irritating at times. But, you know, it, when it's a verbatim translation of our website, that's a little bit. Yeah. But, yeah. but other than that, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's fine. We're happy with it. Also, I think the other thing, too, is that the transparency was, was it, it was, now it's, it's, it is it's almost demanded a badge. It's, a, yeah, it's yeah. a badge to have MGP. When we started, MGP was a dirty word. I mean, it was crazy. It, Could, it, couldn't give those barrels away. And it was the <laughs> best whiskey. I mean, it was really pretty amazing. They're great, but. Yeah. yeah, things have changed. Same with same with Dickel. You know, now it's like <laughs> everybody's. I got friends now in Kentucky, like going by in seventeen year, you know, Dickel releases. I was like, where have you, where were you, you know, five years ago? <laughs> <laughs> I was telling you all about this, but anyways. Well, I think the focus has changed too. Is that people are not just focused on where things come from. It's more about what it yeah. tastes like. You know, it, it's you know the the baseball card thing is still there, but I think that the average consumer is really focused more on you know what what these things really taste like. And you're you're seeing more and more willingness to educate around where flavors come from and how these products are created. Yeah, and you're not and you've kind of not just stuck with those three sources. You kind of I notice on labels now too, it's like you got Texas, Wyoming, New York, all these Maryland, Iowa, Georgia. All, all, yeah, yeah, they're all over the place. Yeah. Places. We're about 60 65 places we source from. Oh wow. Yeah, that's amazing. So another question I had is is kind of going back and, and looking at it. You had an idea of thing, we're going to go all cash strength. Did anybody else tell you, they're like, that's a bad idea. Like, you're going to get rid of 90% of the drinking market because they want something that's 90 proof or less. So what was, did you have any of those, like, 
I guess you could say devil's advocate of a light, a feral light. (laughs) If I had listened to the advice of everybody, we wouldn't be in business. We had a vision. The vision was differentiated, cast strength, transparency, you know, optimal blending, using whatever ingredients we had to make the best product, going off-premise first instead of on-premise, doing cast strength instead of lower proof. All of those things, it's upside down. It was the opposite of what the traditional spirits development, product development, and marketing tells you. And so it was, I just knew that that was the right way to do it. And we just stayed at it. And and you know it's uh, we've had a little bit of a success, so it's you know, and we're going to continue to do what we're doing and keep innovating and keep giving other people ideas on what to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so a shot at us. Yeah, <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. No, we're happy for you guys. Yeah. You guys are doing a great job. Well, a thank you. Appreciate well, it. We've learned from some of the best. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've we've loved it. We love. Have, it's been great to hear what's going on during the Roger coattails. You know. <laughs> I know we've tasted along the way with you. It's, it's yeah, it's good. I appreciate it. And I guess one of the things that also to kind of think about maybe trip you could look at this is. Like, what have you learned in just the blending and harnessing those skills, starting at like batch one to going up to what like batch 37, batch 40 now? 30, 35. 35. Okay. By the time this comes out, batch 92, like whatever it's going to be, like how have you felt that, do you felt like the product has gotten better over time because you've been able to work on them, developing those skills? Do you look back and go on like, ah, I wish we would have done this a little bit differently? Like, what are your kind of thoughts? Good question. And before Joe and I really started blending, my focus was basically distillery operations. It was yeast and grain and how you mill grain and how you treat yeast and fermentation science and making sure you control all of those things because that's where your flavor is coming from initially. So you've got to get all of those things right before you run the still, before you go into a barrel, before you go into a rickhouse. And so manipulating flavor through all of those different variables was where I was initially. And so when we started blending, the conversations I would have with Joe is, you know, all of these distilleries are using different yeast strains and different grain bills, and they're going to create these different profiles. So let's go through and see if we can earmark what those differences are and see if we can make those things work together. And so that's where we started looking into using different distilleries and, and, and all those different types of barrels. And then it was, okay, we, we've got these complex bourbons that we've put together. How do we go a step further? And then it was, where can we go after we have mature blends or mature bourbons to get more flavor? And so then we said, let's look at finishing casks. Let's look at other spirits markets and see what they use or other other spirits industry, like the wine industry, or you know, go overseas and look at cognac barrels and look at these different characteristics that maybe we could use to add some sort of layer of complexity to our bourbons. And so we would start with one barrel and say, okay, let's try, you know, this complex blend of different distilleries, bourbons in, say, a sherry cask. Let's see what that contributes. And then it was, okay, let's take maybe a sherry cask and maybe a cognac cask. And let's, and so we're, we're building complexity here. And so over the last 10 years, we've really honed our skills at being able to put blends of bourbons together and then layer in the different contribution of flavors that we get from these external sources. And I think, 
you'll you'll see that in our seagrass product, our dovetail product with three finishes, our vantage product that has three different casks that we had made to finish. They didn't have anything in them to begin with. So you've got a full wood contribution instead of more of a finished contribution. And so, you know, we've really worked at, at, at harnessing those flavors over the years and uh, honing in on our blending skills with that. Yeah, it seems like with your all your finished products, it's like they're all like ancillary. It's not like the main component. That's where I get deterred from a lot of finishing products is where it's like, if I just want to drink sherry, I'll drink sherry. Or if I just want to drink port, I'll drink, you know, a lot of them just go way too far. And it's like you've created that nice balance. And it seems like you figured out like, okay, these blends are going to react this way in that type of wood to give us this. And we can just kind of replicate that throughout time. The threshold is almost that you don't, you can't identify the finish. So that's that's the line that we straddle, because there's a contribution from it. Um, I can vouch for that too. When you did that blind tasting with me, <laughs> I can't remember what episode that was. It's like you know you're drinking like it's amazing, but I can't tell what it was finished. Right, <laughs> yeah. and that so it's a subtlety, and we're tasting all the time, and we're blind. We blind taste everything, and we back test everything. We back t- we taste it against our other products, against competitive products, against you know anything you can imagine. Even we'll even throw in a Canadian whiskey in the test just to see, make sure that we're, we don't have any bias in our testing. So it could be, or an Irish whiskey, it could be anything. So we just want to keep our palates honest. So between the three of us, it's pretty amazing. I mean, we, and it's, we always, almost always land in the same spot. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like with the blending and the finishing, you're kind of pioneers. And it's like, I'm looking at like the future of when it's like, well, what could possibly be next? You know, cause it's like, it seems like every cask has been explored blends have been explored and it's like what you know our consumers you know it back when people just buy the bourbon they like and that was it and now there's this all these other things but it's like what possibly could be next you know that's what i'm trying to wrap my head stay around. tuned <laughs> space, Remember, space bar barrels let let them go know, first yeah. Yeah. Dude, and then we just everybody copies them that's right <laughs> they basically just set the standard didn't somebody put Whiskey in a rocket, isn't that something? Yeah, yeah, yeah thing, right? It's happening. I guess seventy thousand dollars a bottle or something. Yeah, something yeah, ridiculous. ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a. It's so I guess deal. being in it ten years now, how do you look at consumer habits and what the consumers doing now and like plan accordingly? You know, because these things all take time, and it's like way more sophisticated. Yeah, way people people demand to know more. I, even one of the things we've done recently is we've evolved our label to the point where on the back there was a there was there was and still is somewhat transparency issues that you there there's some things we cannot disclose and but for, we like try what? to uh, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, <laughs> no, 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 it's it's mainly the producer yeah but but so what we've done is people have always one of the questions we almost always got was what's the mash bill and it's like there's like a bunch isn't of that the hardest yeah, one to yeah, do yeah we yeah. get that one all the time and you're like i i do we want to just like add them all up together and like divide by three well, and then there we go? That that's a there's a derived mash so bill. This on is here. the first release. Oh, I see that. that. Blink components. Yep, derived well, mash. Yeah, give give a listen. So how do you? Okay, so at. on the back it says blink components. You have an Indiana rye five, six, and ten years old. Tennessee rye five years old. Kentucky rye six years old, and Canadian rye fourteen years old. And then a derived mash bill of eighty nine percent rye, seven percent corn. And malted barley four. So how did you come at the derived? And, and so so what we've done there Arithmetic. is <laughs> that, that's Excel our spreadsheet. That's our rye batch formula. four. And there are 
different percentages of all of those different barrels in that blend, each of those groupings of barrels will have its own mash bill. Mm-hmm. So the percents of the individual grains in the individual mash bills generate a percentage of that particular mash bill. And then you just you break it out across all those barrels and add up the different the, the corn rye and the malt. And so that it'll it'll give you a blend, it'll give you the mash bill of what's in that bottle going backwards is you know, yeah, I was about to, not going to be able to do it. I mean, that's then that's a pretty, that's a relatively relatively straightforward one. Yeah, um, I figure with rye whiskey is probably a little simpler because they're going to be majority higher. But then you get some bourbon ones, you're going to have we know, could, you're have, we uh, may use two barrels. Yeah, you could have like a the only the only bourbon with 105 percent grains. Right? <laughs> that's, <right. laughs> that's what some people and like because we have six different like and I forget the one Sagamore rye one we do. It's like 50. What crap? I don't know. You know, it's like it's hard to remember them all. But I like this coming soon. We'll be having derived mash bills on the back. There we go. <laughs> yep. So we can. We that's can awesome. That. That's one of the things that's changed a little bit. You're there's a lot more people coming into the, into the market. I mean, you you guys, you were talking about it the other day too. I I think it's very interesting that there are. It's almost like we have new people coming in who don't have. Oh, it's not like it is. They don't have the history of going through the different evolutions of it. Yeah, so yeah. now they're coming into it, and it's a it's a point now where there's a lot of finished product. Yeah. So there'll be obviously there'll be a backlash to that and a movement away from finished products in the next couple of years and back to regular. I kind of feel, feel that every, everything is cyclical at the end of the day, and this will this will all be. I don't want to say it's a fad. I think this will still be out there, but. It's not going to be out there to the same degree that it is today where everybody's just like putting out one thing after the next, after the next, after the next, because how do you keep in front of the consumer? How do you have them continually chasing the shiny red balls? You have to just continually keep putting stuff out. And if you just have the same seven-year-old Kentucky bourbon, that's not doing it anymore. But at some point, that'll hopefully flip around and people just want to start drinking good bourbon again but who knows yeah and th- there'll be ways to innovate on that like we're doing with our batches you know it's it's more complexity and different different products put together you know and it, it's interesting and we probably should touch on the a word ambrana oh okay it's oh, okay. <laughs> favorite yeah because i know how much you guys really like. i'm a yeah. I'm a second. I'm second in line in the the hater hater pile over but there. It, but I think that that's bringing a lot of people to the category. Yeah, really think so. Just, I think so. Yeah, I think I think it's because the flavor is so different. I mean, I agree with you. There's it is all over the place. There's really bad. There's some real. There's some good. But I think that it's a different flavor profile and it's an accessible one. Yeah. Except, so, except yeah. What unless you, you unless you react negatively to it, like some people don't drink gin. Right. Um, you know, so what is it about Amberana that you like or that you all think is like benefits your all's blends? Amberana in and of itself has just a, a unique like baking spice and some herbal notes that are just very, very concentrated. And when putting blends together with this, if you're not careful, those flavors can really overtake the whiskey. And we've tried a lot of different stuff in the markets and we've been playing with Amberana wood for over a year now. And really dialing in the whiskeys that we used in those barrels that can actually hold the finish and still not be covered up by that, by those spices, took some time to figure out. And so now we have, we, we have a really nice, I'll say recipe of, of, of a blend that we can put into these barrels 
for a certain amount of time and get a very well-balanced, finished product out of that that lets you know that there is Amberana in this whiskey, but you also get all the characteristics of the whiskey as well. So it's it's a it truly is a really well balanced product, and that's really the difference. And so that product is the first in our cask finish series is going to be Amberana, and behind that will be bourbon finished in our tale of two islands barrels. Okay. So oh, we have the, we good. had the barrels left like over that we did long. that we did the rum in, so we're finishing bourbon it. But but back to the Amarana, I what was I thought was pretty amazing about it is the first time we tasted the whiskey in it, it was. Imagine going into a mall with has a Cinnabon, and you know when <laughs> you open like that door, overpowering, and, yeah. it, and it's it's yeah. you're immediately hungry and you're like you want it, but you know you're going to regret it because <laughs> it's uh, like a thousand yeah. calories, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to go take a nap. <laughs> it was it was like that. It was really it was amazing. It was just it was a sensory experience, but we knew that we couldn't. I've never had could put that in a bottle. Yeah, I've never had one that tastes like that. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe we'll, maybe we'll. <laughs> but so what hold it, all your like, reservations. Well, but, but, but that was what? that was the pure that was just the whiskey from that barrel. Yeah, yeah. The blend is the blend is incredibly complex, but but that one experience was just eye-opening because of the possibilities sure. that were in that barrel. It's just and another it, layer you can build off or add into something to kind of give it this nuance or whatever. Right. And yeah. to be really clear and not be the main focus. Yeah, we had these barrels built. That's one of the reasons that we're coming up with it now. I know Fred was mentioning sustainability and ethical harvesting, and we we, we actually went back and we know exactly where this wood came from, what plot of land, what the process was. The farmer dried it on his porch. Not kidding. It's, this is really a lot like the Portlandia with the chicken. <laughs> you got <laughs> a cell phone number. Yeah. You can yeah. call yeah. The, yeah. The, the ancestry the, DNA. The, we know the trees <laughs> that were friendly with it. <laughs> and so it's, it's, and it is an ethically harvested. So are they 53-gallon barrels? Or are, they, are, they, and they, are they charred at all or just, just put together? If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon. The farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. 
are they fifty-three gallon barrels, or are they are they and they are they charred at all, or just just put together and hooped? And these these are toasted. Toasted, gotcha. Are is that common for Ambrana barrels, or I have to say I have zero knowledge about them. <laughs> it, you can make these things however you want. You okay, can toast them, char them, you know, however you'd like to use them. The beer guys have been using Ambrana wood for a long time. We just elected to toast ours. What is the kacha? What is the kacha? Kasasha. Oh yeah. What, what do they? How do they use them traditionally? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. They, that's I mean, a they, good question. I doubt they're, I, they're probably just raw. It's wood. probably just raw wood. Just yeah. raw wood. Yeah. Gotcha. The um, but you know, one of the things is I was pointing that out because these are barrels. It's not staves or dust or chips or whatever. I mean, this is it's not an art. This is the real thing. It's it's just it's it's a magnificent flavor. I mean, it's we'll try it sometime. Okay. Well, Let's like do. I said, we'll we're definitely I'm always open always to try. open to try it. <laughs> that's for sure. So I also want to kind of talk about like what your facilities are like have been and what you're moving into and, and everything like that as well. Because I remember the first time that we went and visited your facility. And by the way, anybody that doesn't know, it's like it's not really open to the public. Like everything there, it's it's a it's a workhorse. It's kind of like your your own little bourbon factory, if you will. And it's like if you ever watched Austin Powers when he's like sitting there, like gets stuck backing up yeah, into the, the hallway. <laughs> that's the forklift driver. <laughs> we, we use that periodically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's what it felt like. Seeing the forklifts just like moving stuff around. It's like yeah, you're like going in between barrels. Uh, you guys were Tetris in there. Yeah, basically. truly, truly busting at the seams. So kind of talk about growing from there into your new space as well. Well, even before that. We were producing in other facilities, and this is my favorite picture. We were in a place that had a still that was heated by open propane, and above the still, right above the still, was one of those gas heaters. (laughs) (laughs) We've gone from that into a, we're moving into a 31,000 square foot facility that we have, you know what, I'm going to, you describe the facility. Well, it's, so when Joe and I got our facility that we are currently, I'll say currently, not the new facility, the one prior to that, everything we were looking for was efficiency. We, we didn't want anything polished. We needed a space that had to meet certain codes so that we could put bourbon in a bottle. And that was literally our focus. And so we found this old, basically data facility. It's, it's a concrete bunker is basically what it is. And it was, it's about 8,700 square feet. And we got all of our blending tanks in there, three bottling lines, all of our office spaces and the barrels that we were going to use to process in chunks. So it was like a true just-in-time facility where we would plan out what we would need. We would ship the barrels in, dump the barrels, barrels would go back out, empty barrels would go back out. We would put the blend together, pump it back to bottling, bottling, bottle that product, and then everything would ship out. And it was literally, I mean, it's, it's just like you're saying, it's just, you know, Austin Powers with the forklift. I mean, everything was very, very efficient. As we've grown, we had this same conversation again. It's like, what do we really need when we make this next step? What do we want this facility to really do for us? And so we spent a lot of time looking for the right facility, and then we spent even more time laying this facility out because we wanted the right amount of office space. We wanted bottling line to support everything that we're doing plus some growth. And we wanted a blending facility that gave us lots of versatility but allowed us to handle lots of volume. And we wanted both of those to sort of work with each other. And what I mean by that is we separate the the bottling facility from the blending 
piece of the facility, and then everything's piped back and forth so that we have our H3 space, everything stays contained, and then the, the bottling line is on demand from any of the tanks in the building. So we spent a lot of time engineering the way this thing would actually operate. And so for the last 15 months, we've been building, getting everything put in place. The tanks are all in, the piping's almost done. They're finishing up the wiring. We finished up the bottling line electrical yesterday. So we are right on the cusp of being able to turn these bottling lines on and, and start dumping barrels over there. That's amazing. That's It's exciting. Will the other facility run in conjunction or is that everything going to be completely moved over? So we're going to keep that facility. We're, we're going to run in there until we can run in the new place and then probably hold on to it for the next few years. But one of the things that we're going to do is move all operations to the new facility and we actually built in enough capacity on these bottling lines so that we're doing some contract work as well. So we're we're just now going through that process and reaching out to customers and, and getting those things set up. But we do offer that as a... Can you put us under your first 100,000 proof gallons? <laughs> <laughs> we do have some bottling equipment we can sell you. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah. We'll start there. <laughs> but yeah, that's an interesting... Regulation, they're not going to change. They're not going to change. No, no, I've tried. Yeah. It's, yeah. No one wants to listen. But no. okay. <laughs> but two of that, you had barrels everywhere and like all these different, but you've got now a century. Kind of, I'm assuming that a lot of your barrels are going to this new rickhouse. Talk of this rickhouse you all found. It's the, the new old rickhouse. The new old rickhouse. Yeah. The new old rickhouse. So this, and what that'll do for you all. So we bought, it's the old Yellowstone rickhouse in Shively, Kentucky. It was built in 1940 by the Dant family. We bought it in December of 21, two, December of 22. He's, he's, a, say, he's a numbers I, guy. Yeah. I was going to say, it had we, to be because we, I remember when it came up on the Kentucky commercial real estate yeah. and we had people send it to us and we we're like, oh shit, that looks cool, but what the hell are we going to do? There's with no way we would do anything. We were this. standing outside the fence with two other guys, companies yeah. to put, the, we, we looked at it, put the bid in in an hour. I got really? the notification oh, wow. at six o'clock that morning. We were standing there that afternoon. <laughs> Went through a bidding war and the whole thing. But anyway, it, it holds 18,000 barrels. Currently, it's a little over the third of the way full. So we're continuing to put our stuff in there. Is that too. with all your we, inventory right now? Or? No, no, or you're no, still no, just slowly just, moving it we're all. Just bringing some How many barrels in. do you have in inventory, if you care to share? A lot. A lot. Yeah, a there lot. you go. <laughs> <laughs> I was just curious. <laughs> So it's third of the way full, yeah. Third of the way full, and we've got 10 acres out there. And we're able to put in two more rick houses and a 40,000-square-foot operations facility out there as well. So we're looking at, you know, sort of what we're going to do with that space and and putting together a timeline on, on what that really looks like. How many so tiers is that? Sense. I was about to say, so wait, you just, you, you're now. just ready to open the new one, and you're already thinking of, like, <laughs> what we're going to have to do. We're to taking a this. break. <laughs> okay. Got to milk the cow again instead of feeding it. <laughs> It's five. It's five stories. Five stories. Five oh, yeah. stories five and, a, and a loft. Yeah, so that'll be cool though too because you, you can, can stay, you can sleep like, up there, right? No, a barrel loft. Oh, you can it, sleep up there too. Yeah. <laughs> you guys come check this out. It's pretty, it's pretty cool the way yeah. they used to do this. I mean, this there's like a sixth floor, but you can only be four feet tall to get up there. And they've got a pulley system where you would pull one barrel up at a time and roll it through the center of the rickhouse, and then it would roll out over the walkways. Six so, stories up. Wow. I mean, it's. But from a from a blender's perspective, it's got to be awesome to have a maturation facility where you can start to understand how these barrels will do in your own rickhouse and then be able to pull additional flavors from that and understand how they interact and work together. I, I think that's fascinating. It's going to be an exciting tool. 
there's also another feature of this place that is sort of unique, which is there's a built-in natural ventilation system underneath that goes from outside to under the barrels and going up and pulling the air through. So it's convection, but also it can be assisted with fans. So we're looking at that. It was it was something that was used a long time ago, but it keeps the airflow going over the barrels. Mm-hmm. What was the attraction of actually getting the building? Because you're probably like us and you're paying storage fees absolutely everywhere and insurance and everything like that. Is it because you're starting to bring on so much inventory that you said, well, we could lower our costs by doing this? Is that the, the main driver? Costs, proximity, operations. There's also another thing that you'll probably start seeing, which is... The income tax you pay on barrels and store in other states, those start adding up really fast. So there's a lot of hidden costs in storing barrels around the country. So it's economic, but also operations. Gotcha. Yeah, you don't have access to it. Yeah, It's just easier. Yeah. No, I get it. As we continue to kind of look forward and and everything like that, because we've gone and seen the past 10 years, I mean, it's just been awesome to be able to see the growth that YouTube has been able to you know, put this brand and kind of build it to where it is today. How big's your team that you have across the states right now? I think our total number of people that work for us are fifty-two, maybe. That's amazing. Wow. That's all. Yeah, that's very cool. I would say that's all. That's that's an amazing. That's a really that's a pretty sizable team to make yeah. sure you can with all good livings. You know, that's you all providing that. That's awesome. Oh yeah. Yes. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's all I'll say. We, we have uh, fifty whatever it is happy employees. Yeah. 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 Best place to work, barrel. Yeah. <laughs> we we actually did win we an did. award for that. Yeah. Oh yeah? Yeah. It is one of the best places in Kentucky to work. That's fantastic. I mean, and so as we kind of start thinking about like what's on the horizon and stuff that you're you're thinking about, you know, you want to think about the next ten years. Like what does the next ten years look like for for not just the company, but for you all? Like where do you want to be as in like either still kind of still manning the ship or is it kind of like, hey, you know, we've we've done pretty good. Let's bring in some more people and like, let's start bringing some time back to ourselves. Like what, what's it really look like for you? Yeah. Well, we love what we do. And so we're targeting an acquisition of Diageo. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, totally, I don't disagree with that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that we're going to, I think our the next 10 years looks like doing what we're doing, growing, expanding. Certainly the the luxury, if you call it that, of having the people is that I no longer have to write purchase orders for labels. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we sort of gave that up a while ago. And so it's more our responsibilities are evolving and changing. And but but you know, the and the good part of that is we get to do the things that we like to do. Because, you know, it's it is it is a process of maintaining your time to do the work that you need to do to make this, to keep the product where it is. So that's been our focus, has been to make sure that we have enough time to be able to do that, to focus on the product. And I think that that's probably going to be more of that, just yeah. more growth, more innovation. It's yeah, life's good. It's fun. You're, you're one of the few companies, you know, a lot of brands will get traction and then but then they hit a wall and they they sell. But you all have kind of pushed past that and continue. And, and I don't know what your future holds in that regard, but like, I guess just talk about like, is there a scale point where it's just like, oh man, this might be too tough for us to, and we need to like get someone else involved or anything like that. Because that seems to be the common pattern, I guess, of brands, building brands. I think it's a good question. And Joe and I've talked about this at length over the years. And that's sort of what really led into the design and build of this current facility. Is there a point where we're going to hit a wall with this projected build 
and not be able to do what we need to do in this facility and have to build again. And so with the equipment that we've installed, with the team that we have, we're at a place where we can sustain our foreseeable growth with this facility. Without any more capital investment? Yeah, with no more investment. Yeah, I mean, it'll, it'll, it'll be, the, it's, it's in the million case range, just oh, wow. w- without any, on one shift, without any real effort we can we can make those numbers so do you think, so we have, do you think we, that'll be serviced domestically or just in it or globally as well hopefully whoever whoever whoever, <laughs> whoever sends wants a purchase it. order <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so it's hard it's hard to know i mean but but the point is that that we've designed this so that we can grow into it and service the business with the existing infrastructure to up you know pretty substantial growth and, you know, if somebody comes in with a check of zeros, sure, we'll talk to them. We're not stupid. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's that's another great question, though, because it's it's your model is, I mean, to be fair, we pretty much copied your model. And, and so it's like when you start thinking of of like what would an acquisition look like? I mean, do you feel like it's a hard it's a hard buy for a Diageo or Constellation just because of, of what we do. It's like, we've got our certain facilities we work with. Like you see like what has been purchased and most of them have been, oh, they source from one place. They have one particular kind of product and they build on top of that mm-hmm. yeah. versus everything that you all have built. It's a complete 180 from that. Do you think it makes you a, a harder acquisition target from that standpoint? Probably. I mean, it, once again, it goes back to we're doing everything. If we did, if we asked advice on this, somebody would say, don't do it. But we're successful and we've essentially created a, a platform for innovation and, and delivering products to the market in a, in scale quickly. We can go, we can go from, con, once we have a final concept to market in less than 90 days, because we're so vertically integrated. I mean, that's a fair question. And so if somebody is looking at our business, they will either understand what we do like that and see the future and the potential, or they'll say, where's your one skew? Yeah. <laughs> and then that was not, it's not a good fit. I, I, just, I just want to plug and we play. Hundreds of yeah, yeah, I was going to say, you have what I would determine is called skew sprawl. <laughs> in, we, in do. My business. <laughs> we do. I don't even know what your GS1 bill looks like every single year. <laughs> yeah, because most people, they just want to plug and play. They're like, we want to take your model and plug it into our existing infrastructure, yeah. you know? It's all fascinating. Yeah, it is. But it's more exciting, you know, to have your own thing and do it your way. You guys are there. You're on your way. Well, you you pave the path. That's that's for yeah. sure. Yeah, don't blush. We're we're really serious about it. <laughs> Joe's cheesing over here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I do want to understand the cask series because you have private release. Well, because you have the private release, and then you have you know like seagrass and dovetail and Armida Vantage. And now the Amberana thing, but that'll be a cat. I guess what's going to differentiate the two? So the Amberana is is a it's a limited release. So okay. the cat the cast series is is a think of it as a private release. So the private release for us is a proving ground. We we you know we know what people like based on what they buy, and then you know we know what flavors work together, and that can inform evergreen products. But what we're doing is we're we're taking a little bit of a of a step that we're going to be doing a limited release. Larger than it's going to be, I think, two or three thousand cases. So each one of those releases will be relatively small, a couple thousand cases, and then we'll do it. We'll do. I think we're going to do three or four a year at this point, and then you know we can always bring it back if it's that popular, or we yeah. can migrate it into an evergreen product if it if it has that kind of traction. And we're also, I mean, we're it's it's a little bit premature, but we are looking at in a, in a couple of months we'll have something else to talk about of another completely new 
new thing. Um, <laughs> I wish we had this sort of like forecasting. And, and <laughs> We're just trying to pay the bills. At some point, <laughs> we need to get a, a whiteboard and put it on the wall, but just put ideas down. Oh, I have ideas. You just don't want to listen to him. <laughs> He's like, no, no more new, new skews. <laughs> we only need two. <laughs> there you go. And the batches, two, is it two year or four year? We do between two and four, but we're going to do two next year. Okay. And, and New Year. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Count it. Yeah, well, it's, a lot, it's a lot to keep track of. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, I just want to say thank you again for coming on the show. And here's another 10 more years of success and hopefully not as many headaches and sleepless nights. Uh, hopefully it's going to be all... All smooth road from here on yep, forward. Just roses Absolutely. and uh, yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if anybody wants to follow you or learn more about Barrel, find your products. I'm sure you got a store locator. Like how they how do they find it? Barrelbourbon.com, barrelcraftspirits.com. Any of those will get you to our website. Instagram. We're on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, YouTube, and I think we're also doing some Pinterest. Um, oh, there yeah, we go. Yeah, yeah, I can yeah. afford Joe's board. <laughs> Joe's, Joe's board on Pinterest. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> well, I guess for anybody that had never listened to one of the past episodes with us, tell them about the origin of just the name of Barrel Bourbon. Barrel? Well, it was, I wanted a name that was, represented what we actually do. And so the closest thing that we could come up with was, it was, there was no you know, fake backstory, no family recipe locked in a trunk. I mean, it was, it was, we wanted to be transparent in the product and also in the name. So it was all about the barrel. That's what we did. And that's, that's how it came. That's how it came out. And the two L's, I like the way it looked from a design perspective. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the alliteration. Probably couldn't, probably couldn't trademark with one L. So it's like add, an, add a second one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, and that alone doesn't get you the trademark. Yeah. And so that's, that's, you know, that's a whole other, <laughs> a whole other that's episode. a whole other education. We'll do a 30 minute trademarks. episode on that the other day. We're just yeah. adding emphasis to the barrel. There yep. you go. Oh, the only thing that I think we didn't mention is we are going to do a very limited 10 year release, 10 year blend. Oh, cool. And we're going to sell that at the Kentucky Bourbon Festival. It's, it's there and only online and then maybe. Can make a slushy out of it? <laughs> no slushy out there. We're bringing back the seagrass slushy. Yeah, those things are. We're going to have a slushy this year. So thank you for the inspiration. <laughs> so, so there's the anniversary plan. To be there. Very and cool. And we also may relax the rules a little bit on tours. We'll see. We'll okay. See. We're, we're thinking about that. Very cool. Very cool. Well, like I said, very excited for you all. Congrats on Thanks. 10 years. Yeah. Thanks for everything. Cool. Really excited the for the, the next few years to continue to watch what happens with your all's brand and everything like that as well. It's just been amazing to see the ride and the roller coaster to be able to have been on of, of winning awards and being in top and, and just kind of like continue to ride that wave with all the different, you know, the seagrass and the vantage and everything that people just continually talk about. So it's just amazing to be able to kind of get to pull a lot of your knowledge and, and kind of share this with the world of, of all of our listeners too. So appreciate you. it. You all. Thanks, yeah. thanks, thanks for the opportunity yeah. for us to even just think about it for a couple of minutes, which we don't do enough of. Uh, yeah. I tell you what, that's what I said at the top of it. Yeah. We always, we everybody always says that they come next, on, they're like, what's next, what's next? they're like, it's nice to come on here and talk about what we've been through and reflect <laughs> instead of just always like, yeah, we very rarely stop to smell the roses. Exactly. Yes, it's exactly. tough in this business. You know, the one thing I'll leave you with is John Krakauer wrote, a book about climbing the Iger. He was older when he was climbing it and he was there with a young climber. And he said, you know, I used to think I can't wait to climb this thing. 
now I now I think I can't wait to say that I've climbed it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty the, good. Yeah. That's that's sort of the view. All right. Well, if you're part of Diageo or Perno, make sure you call me and I can give you Joe's phone number. We can we can we can end that story. We can negotiate a deal. <laughs> we'll take ten percent. Yeah. <laughs> wow. But yeah. See, we're nice. It's only ten percent. That's right. All right, but guys, seriously, uh, from the bottom of our hearts, congratulations on all Thank success. You. Uh, looking much. forward to everything going forward. So make sure you follow Barrel, follow these guys, everything that they are doing. Mention Bourbon Pursuit, leave a review, share the podcast with a friend. And with that, cheers, everybody. We'll see you next time. Toodles. Toodles.